it'll be really, really cool and interesting to see, you know, how we take, you know, a creator who sells merchandise really, really well, but how do we build out a much larger brand outside of apparel and kind of scale that from, you know, 10 million to 50 million. Welcome to Shopify Masters, your companion for starting and building a business. The podcast brought to you by Shopify. I'm Schwingester Shan, and today's episode features Chris Vaccarino, the founder and CEO of Fanjoy, the multi-million dollar merch company behind some of your favorite social creators' merchandise. In this episode, Chris shares with us how he discovers new talent to work with, how he transitioned from print-on-demand to find production partners that can scale, the future of the creator economy, and how FanJoy is expanding into retail. Before our show, I wanted to talk to you about our free store setup guide. If you're new to Shopify in the process of setting up your store or wanting to fine tune it even more, our team has created a free step-by-step guide to teach you how to make your ideal store a reality. For the complete free Shopify store setup guide, visit shopify.com guide. Now onto our show. It seems like anytime your favorite YouTubers, TikTok creators, social stars launch merch, it's with Fanjoy. From TikTok phenomenon Addison Rae to YouTube legends The Try Guys, Fanjoy powers over 100 creators in their process of making and selling merchandise. Their business model is at the heart of the creator economy, something that barely existed in 2014 when Chris Vaccarino was starting the business. Back then, Chris was touring with his brother Chad King's band, A Great Big World, and he was working the merch tables and got to expand and work with other musicians. And he didn't actually work with social creators at first. It feels like anytime we see a major social creator launch merch, it's always with Fanjoy. Um, So it's hard to imagine that you guys actually only started in 2014. So take us back. Like, how did this all begin? Hopefully, eventually, you know, every creator is loaded through Fanjoy. That's kind of the goal. But um, going back, 2014 was the start of Fanjoy as a business. And, you know, just going back into those early days, we definitely have evolved since then. You know, we started out basically as a music merchandise care package company, right? Where you can subscribe to your favorite musician and every three months you receive a care package in the mail from your favorite music star. And then I think even in 2014, you know, uh, we kind of used my brother's band as the catalyst to like launch the company. I was at all my brother's shows, the music venues selling t-shirts to to the fans uh, night after night. And I really just saw the passion that the fans had for my brother and the band. Obviously they shared that same passion that I had. So I was wondering how else we could kind of connect them you know, with the band A Great Big World on a, on a more personal level. So we kind of launched the care package around them, you know, using their favorite items, also um, exclusive merchandise, signed items, backstage passes, things like that to kind of get the fans really engaged with it. So 2014, we launched the first package with them and it did great. I think we did uh, just over 200 subscriptions, which from going from zero to 200 subscriptions, and I think it was over 10,000 in sales within, you know, a few days. That was just like a really cool moment for us to be like, wow, like, Maybe there is something here uh, and maybe there's a bigger business that can kind of be made around these music stars. So yeah, I mean, that was the the initial kind of uh, selling point for Fanjoy of like, can this business work and 
how, how like where else can we kind of take it from here? Mm-hmm. Even currently, that's a super new concept, subscription boxes for your favorite celebrities. And But then you also decided to pivot and actually start working with YouTubers and social creators. At what point motivated you to make that pivot? So yeah, from 2014 to 2016, I think we really saw the rise of the influencer creator, you know, the talent that we were working with was, they were all always social and like growing on social. So I don't think we were actually searching for influencers or creators. They kind of just came to us. You know, I would, I would see likes from these kids from like 16 to 20 years old is getting like, you know, a hundred thousand likes on pictures on Instagram. And that was just kind of like what was sparking my interest of like, okay, these, these kids are obviously getting some engagement can they sell product? And like that, that was kind of like what was like really curious in my mind. And I think in 2016, we actually worked with Maddie and Mackenzie Ziegler, who were popular from, from Dance Moms. You know, we did a package with them and they crushed it. You know, they had large followings on, on YouTube, on Facebook, on Instagram. And then I was like, okay, maybe there's, there's something else here. So yeah, I started reaching out to a lot of just Instagram creators um, with, with large followings, kind of like launch after launch. They just kept selling you know, hundreds and then eventually thousands of units. So from 2016, when we were working with maybe like one creator to 2017, we, we actually jumped from, you know, 1 million in sales from 2016 to 30 million in sales in 2017. And that kind of really just turned the switch on of like, okay, this might make more sense than trying to, you know, sign these musicians who uh, were hard to get in touch of, go away for a little bit while they wrote their next album. And these content creators were constantly creating YouTube videos and putting out posts where the ability for them to sell product was just so natural because the abundance of content allowed for them to kind of have those moments of, you know, plugging their pro- their own products, which traditional celebrities have kind of always been a little bit cautious of the amount of times they're, they're promoting something. So these kids really started generating revenue for FanJoy. And that's kind of when we kind of leaned in, into it a little bit more uh, since 2017 and really pivoted to a merchandise experience company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel like um, to your point, creators, there's no seasons for them. There's no albums. There's no breaks. And also they come with a, a, like a very large following that's super supportive. For yourself, when you do see new platforms like TikTok or new creators on different platforms, what are you looking for before you reach out to talent to, to approach working with them? Yeah, since we since 2017, we've had our fair share of talent that's come in with 6 million followers on Instagram, but their ability to sell product is difficult, right? So 6 million followers, they sell 20 t-shirts, something, something's not adding up. So I know uh, uh, on the, so in the social world, you know, numbers can be, can be a bit of a fluff or, or fake. So it's really trying to find like who really has these hardcore loyal fan bases. So on our end, we're really looking at, you know, the data, right? I think data tells a story every single time. So every creator has uh, data on the back end of, of all these uh, platforms that they're using. So from YouTube to TikTok to Instagram, you're able to get some sort of data of you know the demographic, the swipe up data from Instagram, because as a creator, if you can drive traffic, ultimately you're able to sell product. And on average, we see uh, you know a conversion rate of two to four percent for each creator. So you know we kind of just do backwards math of like every creator that we work with, and ultimately make an estimated guess of like can this person sell product if they've never done it before. Sometimes uh, creators come to us and they're, they're like, hey, you know, I've done a million dollars in merch sales in the past year. I want to kind of start to scale that. And then you know, for us, it's a no brainer for us to kind of work with them. But new talent who might have just emerged on on TikTok, who hasn't grown their Instagram or Twitter following yet, um, 
sometimes those kinds of creators have difficulty selling product because they haven't just generated the loyalty with the fans just yet. Um, so it might take a little bit more time. So for us, I think, yeah, we kind of always look at the data when trying to work with any talent on our end. Mm-hmm. I'm always curious on how you guys promote because these social creators are kind of promotion channels in their own right. They'll be driving back to their FanJoy page. But do you actually do paid ads in addition to that to see if you can amp up sales? Totally. Yeah, I mean, I think for FanJoy, you know, we try to handle like 90% of the workload for the creators that we're working with. So everything from design to production, uh, all the fulfillment, customer support, uh, we do a ton of email marketing, product shots, photo shoots, paid advertising, everything that it takes to build a brand is what we take on. So we're definitely looking at paid advertising to help boost and generate additional profit for the creators. We see on the paid side, it's very cheap on our end to acquire a customer because we're already targeting a built-in fan base that is looking to buy products or is at least looking to engage with this specific creator. So when we do any kind of paid advertising, we're making sure that it's in the voice of the creator that we're working with, but also making sure that we're targeting with the right offer and the right promotion. So we definitely you know, lean into paid ads on our side only because we have that target audience for us to kind of use for that. At the end of the day, it's going to reach more more fans and more customers and hopefully build a bigger brand for the creators that we work with. We, we definitely have seen um, you know, the Shopify TikTok integration has been a really cool platform and, and integration for us to kind of work with and play with uh, because our talent is so heavily involved on, on TikTok that we're, we're seeing very cheap conversion costs when we do you know the TikTok paid advertising. Same with Instagram and Facebook, you know, we have the target audience. So it just makes sense for us to kind of lean into those paid ads uh, for the right creator. Not every creator wants to do the paid advertising. They kind of think they can, you know, they can reach all of their fans on an organic basis. Uh, I think we all know that the algorithm definitely does not reach all of the fans, especially when somebody has 20 plus million followers on Instagram or, or TikTok. So for us, it's, it's kind of also educating our creators and, and clients of like, hey, if we put a little bit more paid ad spend behind this product launch, ultimately, you're going to make more money. And I think at the end of the day, that's the creators love. They love making money, but also they love building their brand more than anything. So that's where we try to kind of come in and educate uh, and support them in, in whatever ways they need. Mm-hmm. Speaking of TikTok, it's amazing because obviously, you know, since the beginning of COVID, we are just consuming TikToks a lot more. So it's no surprise when I look at Addison Ray's merch is with FanJoy. I got really into watching like Newton's uh, food videos and surprise his merch is with you guys. So I'm assuming, is there people in your office just constantly consuming content and seeing who is the next person to work with? Yes. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I think on our end, um, I think, and also there's a lot of tools out there now that kind of give you a, a good amount of data of like who's, who's, uh, the growth rates of these creators, like who's who's the top of the list on the trending charts on YouTube, um, who has the fastest growing TikTok accounts. That way we were able to kind of really target the people that have the potential to sell product eventually and also start with the top, right? It's hard, it's hard, it's hard for us to just randomly search on an explore page and find somebody. Usually um, there's a lot of collaborations happening that we're able to kind of just get a good idea of which creators might pop off next. Um, but there's always the unexpected ones. Newton is a very good example of a creator where I was literally just scrolling on Twitter. Somebody, I think, liked a tweet of Newton's and I started looking at Newton's videos on Twitter um, and he was getting like 100,000 plus views. Some of them, like I think over 500,000 views on Twitter alone on his videos. Um, I, I had never seen that before. I had never seen somebody just really own 
Twitter. And that's when I reached out to, to Newton and I was like, hey, you have really cool videos on Twitter. Uh, do you want to like launch product? And on his end, he was always thinking about it, didn't really have the right the partner for it. And then, yeah, we started launching, you know, Newton's products uh, mid last year. And that's also a really good example of like, also, there's there's so many different platforms that you can definitely just own one of them. But I think with Newton specifically, he was able to kind of port over his fans to TikTok, to Instagram. And now we have multiple platforms to promote and sell product and also to distribute his his videos to continue to grow his brand in a bigger way. Mm-hmm. And I just love how beautifully it ties in with his merch because it's like for a long time, he always says he adds like parsley to everything and is just like an ongoing inside joke for whoever is watching his videos. So it just worked beautifully when his array of parsley merchandise launched. So yeah, I love that. Totally. Well, I think that also kind of just brings in more of like the community element to the products that, that we put out with our with our creators, because I think at the end of the day, these fans want to be part of something. Um, and that's kind of what these uh, these creators allow. They allow a community community to be built. Um, and when you can tie in those inside jokes to that, so that way, when you're walking down the streets, somebody might be like, oh, that's a cool parsley hoodie. But like, on the inside, the, the, the fan knows that, hey, this is you know, Newton's, Newton's product. Uh, I'm supporting him uh, and his um, you know, entrepreneurial uh, endeavors with with his cooking shows, uh, and also about by supporting him by buying these uh, products. So, yeah, I think community has kind of always been what's driving sales. Um, and on our end, it's like how do we how do we bring that out of them? So, I think even on the first calls with potential talent, we we kind of always look to be like, hey, what are those phrases? What are what are your fans going to want to buy? And what are you known for in your community? Uh, because what might be cool to them might not be cool to the people that are watching their videos. Chris's experience working with musicians like Mariah Carey and Hilary Duff prepared him for the growth of FanJoy. He navigated the legalities of creating on behalf of the talents, negotiating with their management teams, and collaborating with their labels all of which helped him to gain a set of much needed skills. With the music side, there's so many people involved um, outside of the management and the labels. There's like business managers and the the, the attorneys itself. It's also a big challenge. So um, there's so many layers in music with the, with the talent. Sometimes we're dealing with parents, right? Sometimes there's these kids are just starting out. Um, they might be 16 to 18 years old. They don't have managers yet, but then obviously like once they do, you know, once they do kind of continue to grow their brand, they get management. For us, we have a lot of relationships already with you know the bigger management companies out there, um, even the small ones, and also even the agencies. So WME, a CAA, UTA. So we have these relationships already built. So that way, a lot of the agents and managers already know FanJoy. They know our process. They know how quickly we can get things done and you know get the brand launched for the talent. But yeah, music, music, musicians compared to I guess the social stars, they're definitely evolving. But I think also we're starting to see a shift where now these social media creators, content creators are starting to get a little bit more structure on their end as well, where you know they have the management, they have the agencies, they have the lawyers. So it's kind of evolving that way where as I think like three years ago, it was much easier for us to get get a talent signed within four days and then get them launched within two weeks. But I think that just shows that the industry is growing as a whole. It's getting more mature, the talent and the, the I think there's more money also being uh, thrown around in the creator economy. So I think once money comes into play, you know, more and more people kind of try to get involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about the operation side? Because I think I vividly remembered a photo of you, you know, in your own apartment, 2014, packaging things by yourself. How did you go from that to now having an infrastructure that is able to, to your point, you know, launch something and sign somebody within a matter of weeks? 
it's funny. I actually actually keep that. I keep the picture uh, right right here. Uh, <laughs> I, I always kind of keep it behind me. Uh, just kind of remember like the early days, like when we started and and like why I started the company. But for um, you know, I think back then, initially doing the product, you know, product packaging and fulfillment myself, you know, with with my my wife and and our roommates at the time. Um, I think that kind of just put it into perspective. Like, hey, this is this is a lot of work, but like, if I didn't do it, I wouldn't have understood that process as well. So I think by doing basically every role within the company, uh, as we were starting out in 2014, and obviously up to now, you know, seven years later, um, something to give me an appreciation for each of the tasks, but also the ability to, uh, I guess, you know, grow each of these areas because I've, I've done it before. So really finding the areas that need to be catered to or, uh, or, or fine-tuned that way we can kind of create the best process to support our creators and our clients so um yeah i mean it's it's really cool to see i think you know we now have over 40 employees at fanjoy um a huge emphasis on customer support i think we we saw in the very early days that you know fulfillment and customer support was like something that needed to be addressed and and something that need was a big obstacle in the very beginning especially as we were Growing so rapidly, right? Going from like one million to thirty million, a lot can happen in that time frame, um, good and bad. Um, and obviously, I think it's like when you do scale that quickly, you know, things break. And I think and, and it's it's really good to kind of see, you know, what those challenges are. Um, really build a foundation for each of these areas of your business, and then hopefully build something that's kind of sustainable and scalable. You know, as you continue to grow, um, I don't think we're you know, we're a hundred percent there yet. I think as we continue to grow, you know, past that 30 million mark in 2017 and we're growing year over year, you know, things will probably, will probably break along the way, but I think, you know, our ability to kind of adapt and pivot and, and really just fix things as they come has been, you know, what's gotten us to where we are today. You know, we don't have any outside funding. We bootstrapped the company since day one, maxed out my credit card uh, for that first product launch out of our apartment. So luckily it's, it's kind of like, you know, we don't have Basically, like we don't have anybody that we're like reporting to on our end. We're able to kind of pivot and and shape the company uh, and adapt to what the creators need on a daily basis. So yeah, I mean, I think with any situation, I think for now it's like how do we create the best possible company and team to support these creators? And yeah, as we grow, you know, we're gonna need more brand managers to kind of work with our our creators. Uh, our creative team is probably one of the most amazing assets that we have as a company because they're able to create brands from ideas that these creators have. And then also on the production side, you know, scaling quickly from the manufacturing domestically to now manufacturing some of the products overseas. We're we're doing a lot, which is also really, really exciting because as a whole, the creator economy is booming. So we're just trying to keep up with the, with the pace. Nice. There's so much to unpack here. I wanted to touch on the fact that you guys have over 40 employees now. When you are expanding the team and essentially they are the extension of Fanjoy now, um, what is the process for you when you're hiring and what do you look for when you're building out your team? That's a great question. I think hiring is, it's, I mean, it's one of the most important parts of, of growing the company, especially now. I think seven years in, you know, we've had our ups and downs, you know, as a company and our, our obstacles of how do we get from, you know, 1 million to 250 million? Like what what is going to happen along the way? And I think what's really happened over the last like year and a half, two years is just really finding 
really amazing people with the experience that can help lead us to the next level. Um, I think, you know, the team that got us from, you know, one to 30 million, it might not be that same team that gets us from 30 to a billion dollars. So I think along the way, we're going to need people who have that experience with scale. And I think at the moment, what's, what we've done a really good job at is just finding people that are able to adapt to any kind of uh, role within the company. And also people that fit our culture and like who can understand and accept feedback and give feedback as well. Uh, so I think for us, that's been a really big change, you know, bringing on leadership early last year, I think for me as a first time founder, scaling a company um, is something I've never done before. So getting people in, in place who have done that has definitely helped, you know, us as you know, grow the foundation of FanJoy to hopefully, you know, take us to that next level. But I think ultimately, you know, finding really, really good people, letting a lot of people within the company talk to them, hear what they have to say, understand uh, their mannerisms, you know, how they how they talk, how they're able to kind of uh, articulate their ideas, things like that always help. And for us, you know, we're working with people who have like massive platforms. So, you know, as the content creators become larger, you know, they're, they're, they're like celebrities now. So they kind of expect the best of the best when they're working with somebody like us at FanJoy. So, you know, ultimately, I think we have a really solid team at FanJoy, uh, but always looking to kind of improve, you know, on the experience that we have within the, within the company, because we want to grow this to a, to a billion dollars plus. And I think we're just going to need, eventually need people that you know have, have, done, have been there before. Does it feel scary to let go of some of that control? Because you're saying that, you know, in order to scale, you need to trust those who have been been scaling before or had leadership experience and you're kind of trusting them to take Fandroid to the next level. 100%. Yeah, I think for me, especially because I was doing so many of the jobs in the first four years alone, before we started bringing on team members in 2017, that even in the very beginning, even now, I think I still struggle with that of like trusting the team members, even though I know nothing's going to happen, like the, the website's not going to crash, like design process is all fine. I think for me, uh, because I've done it for so long, the initial let go period for me, it's definitely a struggle, but something I definitely over, have overcome over the over the last couple of years. And now I'm, you know, I try to step back when it's not my area anymore. So I think finding those leaders within these areas um, of the company that, um, you know, that I was really, you know, hanging on to has definitely helped, you know, let go. I'm, not, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only founder that kind of feels that way because it's like your baby, right? Like this is something that over the last seven years, like this is all I've really focused on and my, you know, obviously my wife in 2016, 2017 came on board to help, you know, grow the company as well. So like, it's a family affair. Like we have, we have, um, you know, a lot at stake here as personally, but also now, you know, we're responsible for over 40 employees and, and their careers. So um, there's a lot of, obviously a lot of pressure, but I think as I've let go as a founder, I've seen that, okay, th things work perfectly fine. And now I can kind of focus on the bigger picture of like, what is that overall strategy? And like, how do we take FanJoy to the next level? And I'm not 100% consumed by like tedious tasks that I have a team in place to kind of help take care of. In addition to letting go of tasks and expanding the team, FanJoy also went through many iterations of finding the ideal set of production partners. Chris actually started the business much like a lot of other Shopify users with print on demand. For us, you know, when we started really hitting like a stride in 2017, a lot of our products were print on demand. So we weren't really holding much inventory on our end. But I think as we saw the shift from, you know, the creators to being more like 
cheeky merch, um, maybe around their name or their image to more fashion, we saw the need to really start doing more full production manufacturing with our creators. So in 2017, we really made a more of a shift to domestic production out of Miami um, and, and also in Los Angeles and really just finding a, a really good network of partners that can help with scale. So manufacturing partners who were already doing, you know, a million plus units per year on their end to help kind of take on the capacity that we're going to be now giving these manufacturing partners. So um, finding an, a really strong network of partners has definitely helped take us to the next level and also sourcing, you know, the right partners overseas. Because I think that for us initially, 2015, 2016, we were on Alibaba just randomly picking you know, manufacturing partners that we saw there. Um, but I think that's not probably the best way for us to kind of move forward in a 2021 world. So, you know, we brought on a, uh, you know, a sourcing expert uh, in our production team now um, is able to kind of, you know, create any kind of product that a creator really wants. Um, but yeah, in manufacturing in the very beginning was always kind of a little bit of a challenge until we had that strong network in place where now, you know, I think last year we ended up shipping over uh, almost 2 million packages, 2 million items. Uh, and this year, you know, on track to doing over 3 million. So as we scale year over year, um, it's really important that the manufacturing partners that we have are able to kind of keep up, but also that we're not solely reliant on one partner. And I think in the very beginning, that's kind of what happened. We got kind of pigeonholed with, you know, one partner doing everything. And that's kind of where, you know, if something happened within the manufacturing process, we really had no other options. So I think always keeping the options open with manufacturing definitely helps, but also understanding, you know, the expectations of, you know, of both sides. And that way we have a clear, concise process in place to hopefully scale without any interruption. This is so inspiring because I think a portion of Shopify users, actually, they test out a business idea with print-on-demand initially. And it's just so cool to hear that you were able to grow with that concept and actually find additional partners and just grow into the fan joy that it is today. So very cool. Yeah, I think in 2017, we didn't really see ourselves as a merch company, but we also didn't know what that what that even meant. So I think we really had to just pivot and re redefined our business and like who we are and what we what, what our capabilities are. So really understanding the, you know, the entire merchandise production process in 2017 helped us, you know, go more into the, the full production type products that we're, we're selling now. But yeah, the print on demand resources that Shopify has like you said, allows anybody to kind of get something up and running uh, in no time and really just test the concept. Um, and for us, we tested it and it worked. So we kind of just lean into it a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Do you remember some of the early apps or print-on-demand tools that you really enjoyed? I think in the very beginning, uh, Scalable Press was one of the the ones that we were using for the apparel in the very beginning. And then, I mean, there's a whole bunch that we tried out. Printful was one of them, maybe T-Launch. Yeah, there, there's a whole bunch. I think back in the day, we were on the Shopify app store just seeing what else is out there. Like what other products can we just connect and try out? Especially because like, like 2017, like going from like that 1 million to 30 million, we were at a point where we were doing like $150,000 in sales per day. And we like we couldn't put products up fast enough. Like So I think for us, we were always searching the app store to see like what else could we sell. Kind of when we came across you know all these apps that Shopify had, not on just the, the production side, but how do you make your store work better? How do you make uh, how do you compress your files? How do you how do you do all these things to make your store function a little, a little bit better? Which is really really cool to kind of see and like us utilize Shopify in a, in a bigger way. Amazing. 
Great to hear. I would love to talk also about the designing process. You mentioned, you know, there's designers on board within Fanjoy. How does a typical creation process look like with a creator? Great question. I think with with each creator, they're definitely every creator that we work with is different. Same with the, you know, the, the designers and the, and the creative team that we have in house. They all have their own, you know, their their own skill sets and things that they are amazing at. So when working with any creator, we try to just get as much information from them as possible. So really getting a mood board, uh, a design aesthetic, anything that they can reference to the the design styles that they're into to give us as much information to start designing. In the very beginning of of Fanjoy, we were just, they were like, hey, make me something cool. We would design something, but then they'd be like, that's not, that's not what I see as cool. So uh, we try to just really extract as much information on like a first creative call with the, with the talent before we even start design. So that way we're all on the same page of like, Hey, this is kind of what we're hearing and understanding of like what you want. This is kind of the direction that we're going to go with the creative process. Um, and bef- until we have that, that mutual understanding, uh, we don't really dive in. But usually the, the creators are able to kind of give us, you know, some general idea of what they're looking for uh, or even provide references. So that way we can we can dive in and, and hit it on the head, uh, you know, fairly quickly. So, yeah, I mean, some some creators approve it on the first go. Some approve it on the 10th. I think for us, you know, we, we're trying to always fine tune it. Like, how do we get the, the deck created uh, within the fastest amount of time uh, without as many, you know, back and forth revisions? But I think it comes with the territory. I think all, all people are different. So uh, we're able to kind of adapt a little bit and, and kind of, you know, keep going until we have you know, a product that the talent loves. Because ultimately, if they don't love it, how are they going to sell it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how will their fans enjoy it as well. So yeah, totally. You guys moving away from print on demand and having these production partners, does it also mean that you need to invest in inventory for specific creators? So I'm assuming there's also this uh, gymnastics of balancing cash flow and inventory and investments. How has that side of operations played um, in the scaling as well? That, I mean, I think early on, that was like a really big challenge for us because we're not venture funded. Everything everything is solely cash, right? Cash and credit. So for us, um, really understanding inventory levels was, was huge. So uh, about two years ago, we brought on somebody who's very, very experienced in inventory and planning to just get the basics down now because we've had our fair share of over-ordering, being stuck with product, and nobody wins when you have product that's not moving. I think that's like probably the worst case scenario for anyone. Um, and these creators come to us to kind of have that expertise of like, hey, how many can I sell? What is the best process when I start? Um, and on our end, I think we w- don't want to put ourselves in any kind of risky situation of being stuck with with product at all. So yeah, we definitely have found that you know we're able to also move very quickly with production. So if a talent or a creator is launching on a Friday, we really don't need to go into production until Monday. You know, we kind of let sales come through the, over the course of 72 hours, and then we move product into production. That way, we're really just do, doing more of a pre-order period that eliminates a lot of the risk uh, that comes with you know the entire process. Some of the talent that we that we have worked with who you know, has a lot of historical data that we can kind of pull from. Some of those t- the, uh, creators, you know, we're stocking product in advance of a launch only because we know that they're going to dominate and crush these numbers that we have projected. We always want to keep the talent's profit at the forefront where we're not limiting them to the number that they can sell. Um, so always kind of keeping some kind of buffer in there or a plan in place for us to kind of sell, you know, additional units if it comes to it. But yeah, I mean, the, the pre-order model and the drop model has definitely helped uh, alleviate any kind of risk on our side. 
and also kind of fine tuning the manufacturing process to be able to turn around products pretty quickly um, has also led to a really good process and and that's not having to stack so much inventory and and kind of sit on it for too long. Mm-hmm. And I think like one of the things that people notice with Fandroy is that things are in limited runs. Does that help you guys predict how things perform in the future? But also like, does it um, help in the relationship where, you know, you can probably have an agreement to only work for this certain drop? And then if it does perform well, then you'll continue the relationship later on. Absolutely. I think also when you, when you do these limited drops, you, you know, as a content creator, their whole, their whole business around telling stories is, is around telling stories and storytelling. So if they're able to kind of, uh, you know, hype up the drop, hype up the demand and like, you know, build up the hype for the product launch. Selling out is probably one of the best things for them to do because now they're able to kind of convey that message to the fans. Hey, we sold out, you know, thank you so much for, for supporting me. And then on that next drop, as a fan, you're not going to want to miss out on another drop. So it's, you know, you're building it. It's kind of like the Supreme model, right? You're building up the sense of urgency. You're creating the demand for the product and you're kind of moving on because, you know, products, only some products, you know, maybe a staple collection or a core product can have a pretty long shelf life. But in this creator world, like things are moving so fast that the limited runs actually work in their favor. So, uh, you know, once you launch a product, it sells out, you know, in the next couple of weeks, maybe four to six weeks, you're already dropping your next your next product. So there's not too much time in between product drops uh, and storytelling for the content creator to kind of, you know, continue to generate sales and, and have a pretty steady stream of income. But, you know, I think the drop model going back just kind of also alleviates any risk for anybody uh, on either side. And it looks like a lot of creators also want to move out of the traditional merch categories, you know, outside of sweatshirts or t-shirts, and they want to move into new products. How has that uh, side of finding new like production partners for that and new designers? Like I see plushies and things like that sort. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, we know that these creators can sell anything. So I think it's really just about what is that right product for them. So looking at the content that they create, looking at, you know, their demo and really just finding new product categories to kind of venture out into. So on our end, you know, we have a whole sourcing team that, you know, their whole job is to find new product categories and present them to talent. And for a lot of the talent who has been with us for a while, where we have that historical data, we're, we're always open to investing into these like outside categories that things like products that we might not have done before, uh, only because we know they have the sales history to kind of clear it through them. Um, I think a lot of times as a creator, they might think they can sell anything, um, but sometimes the product doesn't match with the demo that they're they're talking to. We're definitely looking into different product categories, even outside of just soft goods or plushies. I think created, creators as a whole um, have the ability to kind of grow and build their own brands. So, you know, from, from food and beverage to, um, to, to games, to really anything. I think Fanjoy wants to kind of take that stance so that if anybody with a fan base comes to us and wants to build a brand in any category, we can kind of be that go-to company, um, almost like an agency to kind of go out and build it with them. We have a, a lot of like really cool projects coming up, you know, this year, um, and into next year that, you know, we can't just announce just yet, but um, it'll be really, really cool and interesting to see, you know, how we take, you know, a creator who sells merchandise really, really well. But how do we how do we build out a, a much larger brand outside of apparel and kind of scale that from, you know, 10 million to 50 million? Like, how do we grow the brands of the creators uh, in a bigger way and not just, 
you know, have t-shirts and hoodies available for their fans because these creators are amazing at what they do. And we kind of just want to support them and and all their entrepreneurial uh, endeavors. Yeah, I'm excited to hear more and, you know, uh, see the news as it comes to light. But uh, one thing that we can talk about is your partnership with Mad Engine and how you guys are bringing these merchandise actually into retail. So outside of the online sphere, tell us more about this partnership. I think with the Mad Engine partnership, the goal there is to eventually, you know, scale creators' businesses at retail. I think the pandemic definitely put it on a, a bit of a pause because obviously, you know, retail got hit as a whole, but we have a lot of this, the data that is able to kind of be translated into retail because we know, we know which, which creators can sell product and we also know where they can sell product. So, you know, obviously with the Shopify dashboard and the, and the reporting, we can kind of get all the analytics that that's needed to present to any retailer and bring them, bring them to retail. Um, but the ultimate goal, I think, for Fanjoy Mad Engine is how do we get, is, is there a possibility for Fanjoy to have a shop in a shop? Like, could we have a Fanjoy shop within Target or within another mass retailer where now we have a huge cycle of creators, merchandise, and products inside of a mass retailer? And instead of, you know, solely being reliant on D2C, we now have a huge retail partner to help push and, and spread more awareness about the brands that we're working on. So, yeah, we're, we're kind of excited to get some of our, our top uh, creators uh, into retail, um, which now we're, you know, we're working on, you know, potentially like fall activations with uh, some of our content creators, which is really, really exciting because, you know, they have the fan bases and they're able to mobilize their fans to a physical location. You know, we've done pop-up shops in the past that absolutely crush it. So we know that the need and the want for retail is there and just like a more, you know, physical experience would definitely do really, really well. So we're, we're excited for it. Exciting. Yeah. I definitely feel like for COVID for FanJoy, it actually worked for the fact that you guys were direct to consumer, you guys were online. So it feels like, especially with, you know, the boom of TikTok, it was crazy to see that your model actually works pretty well in this COVID situation. But has there been challenges that COVID brought up that you guys had to face behind the scenes as well? You know, I would say like last March when kind of COVID started coming to the forefront of like, hey, this is actually serious. I think the biggest impact was probably the unknown in the very beginning of like, you know, especially at this is, you know, we just signed a new lease on our office. We were all about, you know, we we're going to have these team meetings and these and these events at our office. And now at a standstill, everyone has to leave the office. We're fully remote. I think that's more of like where the concern might have been last year. But I think come, you know, last April and last May, you know, like kind of like what you referenced, sales started booming. I'm not saying we're pandemic proof, but we definitely uh, were able to kind of still grow the company while being remote. Um, and while selling products D2C. So uh, I think it was, yeah, I think it was mainly the concern of the unknown and also some manufacturing partners unable to either ship product or like blank inventory to our, to our decoration facilities. Ultimately, as a business, we were fine, but the stress of a pandemic, I think it's probably on everyone's mind. And especially as our, as our team was remote, you know, we weren't, no one was seeing anybody, right? We were, everyone was seeing the transition of, you know, in-person meetings to Zoom, which I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it's just a different way of working. The last year as a business, we grew, but now it's like, how do we, well, how do we continue that momentum? You know, post pandemic, what does that look like now moving forward? You know, as vaccines start to be come into play, do we go back to the office? Do we have a hybrid model? There's still a lot of unknowns. Uh, 
that the pandemic has caused. But yeah, I mean, since the very beginning, we've always adapted and kind of adjusted. So this was no different. Looking forward, are there any goals or projects that you can share for this year um, and beyond? I'm definitely excited. I mean, I don't know when, but obviously I think going back into like getting more into physical activations, you know, with our creators, you know, we have, we've just had such really good success with these pop-ups that we've seen the, the, the loyalty of the fan bases and like thousands of people that show up to the, uh, the pop-ups, uh, just creates a really exciting energy around the creators that I'd love to kind of start getting back into. So I don't know exactly when, but we're trying to get that on the roadmap and also just try to find other ways to kind of support creators. I, I will definitely share, you know, when the time comes, the other products and brands that we're looking to create. Maybe I'll come back on the podcast and then share it um, and share some some learnings. But um, yeah, um, I think that for right now, it's just transitioning back to normal type of work and eventually going back into a the pop-ups at the moment. With the retail opportunities, Fanjoy will be able to expand their impressive platform that powers over 100 creators in addition to almost 30 separate stores they manage for some of the select creators. What also makes us different from any other merchandise company out there that I think a lot of people over, overlook um, is that Fanjoy as a whole, you know, we're a creator marketplace, right? So you're able to kind of shop multiple creators um, in one cart, whereas other merchandise companies that might be out there, you know, they are building standalone stores, which all, which we also do, but they don't have like that central hub or almost like an Amazon-like product um, like Fanjoy, where we are now like an online digital retailer that can, you know, that you can browse and shop content creators' products on. Yeah, I definitely want to see how we can get Fanjoy um, as a marketplace, more to the forefront, and eventually onboard more talents because we have we have a lot of great data. So that way, like when a new creator kind of comes in, we're able to kind of use that uh, the data that we have from you know other sales and other customers to potentially sell more products. But it's a really a, a big focus for us to kind of shift it. So like, how do we become that Urban Outfitters of the digital creator world? Like that's kind of like where we want to live. But yeah, it's uh, it's definitely an exciting space as a whole and. If you go on Twitter and people don't stop talking about the creator economy, and uh, and that's a good thing. I think that's good for for us. It's good for Shopify. And it's good for the creators because they're actually you know they're creating movements from their from their bedrooms. They're creating movements from just holding a camera. So it's really cool to see and really cool to be a part of. The platform aspect of it is really cool. I'm not sure if this is the right analogy, but imagine like also Bandcamp was a place where you could browse so many musicians, buy their CD, buy their merch to support them. You're kind of creating that also for the social stars, but all these social stars probably don't even know what Bandcamp is at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) I did want to ask, so there are creators who actually build their own stores and you guys support them with merchandise and do they, are there creators that actually don't have the catalog with Fanjoy, but they have their separate store and they actually get their inventory through you guys? The way we work, I mean, we definitely have talent that, um, that we, build and manage their own storefronts uh, and their products are not on Fanjoy. But we also have, we have talent that has, that we manage power and manage their own storefronts and they are on Fanjoy. So Addison Ray um, is on shopaddisonray.com. That's where kind of she's pushing a lot of her fans to. But we also sell Addison's products on Fanjoy. And we also see like about 25% of Addison's sales come from Fanjoy. Um, so there's a large, you know, there's a lot of crossover in, in the products and the customers that we see uh, of people buying products on uh, on Fanjoy compared to the talent's own store. So I think we can also look at Fanjoy as more of like another distribution channel for to sell products, right? So 
There's no risk or harm for a creator to sell products on Fanjoy. Hopefully, it just increases sales and revenue and profit for them. All the stores that we build are, are based on Shopify Plus. I think at the moment, we have about 25 stores that we uh, manage uh, and build and power. We don't really leverage uh, or partner with creators where they just you know buy product from us. Uh, we're usually you know taking care of the entire process and package for them. Wow. Okay. That's super cool to know. Cause I wondered about that as well, like the breakdown, but yeah, to your point, this is a marketplace for creators and, you know, someone might be browsing some other creators and they see Addison's merch and they might just add it to their cart. So super cool. Totally. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for chatting with me today, Chris. Um, I feel like I've learned a lot and I'm excited to see where you guys are headed to next. Awesome. Likewise. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Shopify Masters. My name is Shuang, and if you enjoy listening to Chris and his journey of building Fanjoy, please leave us a review on our listening platform so our show can be discovered by others. Until next time on Shopify Masters.